the first evening, Larry spoke about our practice as pointing towards wholeness. And he spoke of uh, no part left out. And I want to talk this evening really about two aspects of the wholeness of our practice that are uh, good to explore on this last evening of the retreat. Because they really point to ways that uh, we may not be whole in our metta practice, in our practice generally. And the two aspects I want to point to are the ways that at times our hearts get separated from our minds, our wisdom, our bodies, our hearts, they're not, they're not whole together. And we've explored how metta uh, and mindfulness in their maturity are um, increasingly the same. So I want to look partly at that question of how to connect metta with the wisdom aspects. And I'll do that particularly by looking at the relation of metta and equanimity. And so that's more has to do with our uh, formal practice as well as our practice um, in the world, but particularly looking at those qualities. And then the second aspect, uh, which is also very challenging, is how to connect this formal practice of metta with our lives in the everyday world. And I'll say some about that uh, tonight, and we'll also uh, explore that some uh, tomorrow morning in, in a, a number of different ways. There are a lot of cultural forces that would separate what we sometimes call our minds and our hearts and our bodies. And in the mainstreams of Western culture in the last few hundred years, there have been ways that uh, actually affect us quite a bit in which the qualities of the mind are often separated from those of the heart and the body. Uh, Sometimes that's been called the development of reason or rationality. And we sometimes have the ideal of uh, uh, true knowledge as totally separated from the emotions, discontextualized or decontextualized, uh, completely objective, separate from values, and this becomes the ideal of, uh, of knowledge. And I, I, when, I, when I say that, I think of having studied at one point developmental psychology and someone who was uh, talking about Piaget said the, the end point of human development is to be a Swiss scientist, <laughs> which is what Piaget was. <laughs> and he developed the theory of... <laughs> But that's, those are very strong forces in our culture, you know, and we have people who've questioned them. A lot of the poets uh, have questioned them. This is uh, Shakespeare. Lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies that apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. 
you know, or some of you know uh, Pascal, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows not. You know? And so poets have continually said, hey, what you're doing with uh, what industrialization and the cool scientist has its uh, problems. And it, those uh, tendencies certainly affect our practice. They're part of the, uh, part of the background uh, that's there in our practice of metta. And of course, in the world where those tendencies are still very much uh, present, you know, where uh, we don't have uh, often very clear ways of connecting our, our minds, our wisdom, our hearts, and our, and our bodies. You know, and it also can be uh, quite confusing in Buddhist practice as well. The same sort of questions come up, and they've come up in the hall. That is, uh, how does this metta connect with mindfulness? Obviously, the practices look somewhat different, and we might say, well, the metta focuses so much on the personal, it focuses on the self. Aren't we developing the self? And the mindfulness practice seems to point towards anatta, sometimes translated as not-self, and this endless rolling of phenomena that are impersonally understood by seeing the causes and conditions affecting each other and so forth. Um, from about 1,500 years ago, Buddha uh, Gosa said, suffering exists, but no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but no doer of the deeds is there. Nibbana is, but not the person who enters it. No doer of the deeds is found. No one who ever reaps their fruits. Empty phenomena roll on, dependent on conditions all. And so sometimes our mindfulness practice would just have us be with the empty phenomena rolling on. I th- and there's, um, that has been so influential. There's a bumper sticker, which I know one of our managers has about empty phenomena rolling on. Right? And so we can get confused. Like, how do these, how do these go together? You know, and uh, you know, in a similar way, metta uses words and language and can seem clunky. And sometimes it seems with the mindfulness and wisdom practice, we point beyond words, and we often get beyond words quite quickly. You know, I know these, these uh, questions have come up in the one-on-ones. How do, they, how, do we, how do we deal with that? Or I was thinking in terms of temperature. Metta is warm, mindfulness is cool. <laughs> or it can seem that way. Uh, or we're, with metta, we're wishing for others. And then one of the versions of the equanimity practice, when I work with a lot, says, uh, no matter what you wish for, things are as they are. And I sometimes think of that as like, Metta says, I wish for this. And equanimity says, no matter what you wish for, kid, things are as they are. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, get over it. <laughs> it can, can feel like that sometimes. Um, you know, take that self. <laughs> and so... Um, you know, and I probably, I could go on a little bit more, but you get the point, right? <laughs> right, it's, it's like metta seems, we can get, oh yes, I really want that to happen, and our mindfulness and wisdom say, you know, just hang out with equanimity, there are causes and conditions, and don't get too involved. So how do we, how do we work with that? I, and if some, if you had already resolved it, uh, I'm sorry to have... <laughs> 
brought up the issue again. <laughs> um, but there's, um, what I want to do is actually point uh, towards two ways that that can be resolved. There are a lot of ways we could talk about it. One is a little simpler, um, and the other is through talking about metta and equanimity. Um, and there's something uh, interesting about what we do with meditation. You know, if meditation, mindfulness, and metta are in part intended to help us see through where the self is thick, we might say. I sometimes like to use the metaphor of the self being thick and the self being thinned. And if we're actually pointing to how um, we often don't see clearly because we have this, uh, what, self-involvement or the preferences or the likings and not likings. And there's, there's an interesting way in which I think uh, both mindfulness and metta practice uh, actually end up in the same place. That's, that's really what I want to say. And that's what we've been saying, but I want to say it in a little bit different way that they, the, the, in, in both of the practices, we start with where we are and we set up what we might call a meditative doer. It's kind of a meditative self who tracks things, you know, and in mindfulness practice, the meditative doer comes back to the object, knows when one's distracted, and then increasingly tracks whatever's happening. And there's a kind of a self there. It can be a subtle self, but there's a self that is tracking things. And, and actually, it's crucial that we have that kind of meditative doer or meditative self. But it is a kind of duality. There is a, there is a self and something that we're tracking. And we do something quite similar with metta. We set up what we might call a meditative doer or self. And guess what that self or meditative self does in metta? It cranks out the phrases, right? And it comes back when we're distracted. And it acts skillfully when things come up. But it's, in a way, uh, there, there's a doer. There's a kind of a self there. What happens in practice is that both the meditative self and the self that we bring to practice get thinned out. Partly that happens through what we call the purification process, where we look continually at our likes and dislikes, at our patterns of reactivity. We continually look at them, we see them, over time we work through them so that we're less reactive. In the course of that, we see how a lot of those preferences and likes and dislikes and patterns of reactivity almost are the contours of this normal so-called self. And it gets thinned. And we can be with experience increasingly without the likes and dislikes getting too influential. We can be with our mindfulness just with the experience and be with that. And we um, also go through the process of purification where some of our wounds, some of our knots that can often make it feel like the self is very thick, those get processed in the course of practice. And there is this thinning, we might say, of the self. It takes time. 
know, it goes through a lot of pro- uh, different processes. We look at our self-judgments. We, if the, if the wounds or the knots are there, they come up in our body, in our hearts, in our minds. They come up, we, we work with them. And over time, they lose their uh, power increasingly. And what that does in, in the mindfulness, it, it takes us more into the qualities of just being present. And at times, even that meditative doer, the tracker falls away and there's just presence. There's just awareness. And we can, we can rest there increasingly. And with metta, as many of you report, there is increasingly, the, we are connected to the metta feeling, the meditative doer or the metta doer uh, goes more to the background. You can experience this as we do more metta, it's more in the background. And the feeling of metta becomes more prominent. And at times it's just maybe short moments, it's just metta. There's just the presence of metta as that uh, doer uh, falls away. And I think that's a way in which eventually they, they come together in a, in a sense. And I was thinking of what Sylvia mentioned in terms of the great teacher Deepama, who uh, uh, taught in, at IMS and um, other, other centers in the uh, 80, uh, I think in the you know, late 70s and 80s. I think she died in the early, early 90s. And Sylvia said that uh, she reported, someone asked her a question, what's there in your mind? And she said, only three things, concentration, peace, and metta. That's all that there is. And so, and then I, I also thought of a, a wonderful story where the uh, Buddha visited uh, three monks. Uh, they were called Anuruddha, Nandiya, and Kambila. But they went collectively by the name of the Anuruddhas. <laughs> so a little bit like a rock group, you know. <laughs> but they were the Anuruddhas, and, Bu- and the Buddha came up and said, how are you doing, Anuruddhas? And, um, and how is it that you three Anarudas, because they took the name of the elder monk. How is it that you three Anarudas are living together on friendly terms and are as harmonious as milk and water blend regarding one another with the eye of affection? And then the senior Anaruda <laughs> answered, he said, we have developed metta in relationship to our body, our speech and mind. Dear Buddha, we have diverse bodies, but we have only one mind and heart. And this has been motivated and accomplished by metta. We no longer prefer our own happiness over that of others. So that may be helpful as one way that our practice has that trajectory where there is the awareness, the clarity, the wisdom, the metta, And both of these practices, in a way, take us there using somewhat different means. There's another way that we can also see that way that the metta connects with the wisdom aspect, and that's through looking at the relationship of metta 
and equanimity, or upekkha. Many of you have been living in upekkha. <laughs> Does it rub off? <laughs> I was thinking of, you know, there's another way to practice metta. I got a, I got, <laughs> I got this uh, mail from a student at a previous retreat, which uh, has these, uh, what seem to be like jelly beans, and it's actually called Brahma Vihara Activator Number One. Supports loving-kindness production. <laughs> so, maybe we'll leave some of them out. They work, <laughs> they work yeah. yeah. I got some too, they work. And so looking at how metta connects with equanimity in the context of the Brahma-vihara can also point to how the heart and the mind, we might say the heart and wisdom, uh, become one, how there can be wholeness in that way. And equanimity is this amazing quality. You know, it's um, sometimes seen as very close to the sacred when there's the quality of equanimity there. And what I'm going to be suggesting, and I want you to listen as I talk about it, to really feel this as a quality of the heart. To really feel this in a way as an aspect of, of metta. So equanimity in the traditional teachings is mentioned often, and it's always the final member of a series. It's the last of the seven factors of awakening. It's the last of the Brahma-vihara. It's the uh, last of the paramis, or the core virtues that are developed. It has some wonderful qualities. And again, I want you to consider these as qualities of the heart. It's non-reactive. It can be present with with what's there. And it really is ultimately the heart that is fully integrated with wisdom and awareness. Sometimes we say that uh, equanimity in its mature state is like the wise grandmother who has seen everything and knows everything and cares and responds. And for me, uh, equanimity has been a very uh, beautiful quality and something that's really drawn me. It's been very uh, fascinating to explore. And I think this is in part because Uh, My father uh, really had a lot of the qualities of equanimity despite some very difficult experiences in his life. And he died about uh, nine years ago. And we actually have a bench down in the uh, courtyard for him, which you can go take a look at. And I I often, I I go and spend some time with that bench every day, actually. And um, to be honest, I, I, I talk with him. He gives me guidance still, (laughs) which is very good, very good quality. I just was down there about like an hour ago. (laughs) So, uh, but he had a, he had qualities of equanimity despite um, having a lot of hardship in his life. Um, His parents were immigrants and his uh, father became a union organizer 
in New York who was very honest and during a strike the um, company bribed him or tried to bribe him and he refused to take the bribe and the company said the condition for the settlement was that he gets fired. And this was during the, this is right at the beginning of the depression. So it was rough, you know, and uh, my father uh, enlisted uh, at age 18 in uh, World War II and saw a lot of friends die and there was a lot, you know, a lot of experience. Um, He also um, developed uh, different illnesses. He had psoriasis from his 20s and, and just seemed to have equanimity about it. You know, it was, you know, it was, you know, like basically red scales all over his body. But he would just go to the swimming pool and be there and it didn't seem to, didn't seem to matter so much. And, you know, he, um, he couldn't go to medical school because at that time when he wanted to go to medical school, they had quotas uh, for uh, people of Jewish background, which uh, some of you uh, may not know this, but they lasted until the early 1960s. And so he couldn't go to medical school. He still uh, became a scientist and he went another route. And I, um, I never heard him speak with a lot of bitterness about these things. Um, from some probably uh, poorly supervised experiments that he, was, that he did in the late 50s, um, there were accidents and his, his eyes were injured. He, he went blind when he was... Uh, started going blind when he was in his late 40s and was legally blind like the last, um, I think about the last 15 or 20 years of his life. No more than that, the last uh, be, I think the last 25 years of his life. And he also developed uh, cancer when he was in his 50s and was given two years to live and he lived 27 years. And, um, you know, there was a lot of equanimity amidst a lot, you know, and I actually, as he got older and with the blindness partly, I think his heart really kept opening. It's interesting, you know, there's this old tradition in uh, many, many cultures of someone who's blind being the seer, you know, her being the wise one. And so um, maybe I, I dedicate the, uh, this talk to him. <laughs> You know, and, and my inspiration, equanimity comes a lot from a lot from um, my experience with him. And of course, they're near opposites, and you know, it's not easy. It's not all perfect, developed equanimity. You know, and we had our issues at times, of course. But um, I learned a lot. So uh, qualities of equanimity. And again, listen to these as heart qualities. Uh, One of the core qualities of equanimity is balance. And much like our metta practice, increasingly becomes balanced. And uh, upeka literally uh, means means balance. It's a a balanced approach to experience, a kind of uh, evenness with experience. Uh, Nayanaponikatara has written a, a wonderful essay about the Brahma Vihara called the, uh, was it the Four Sublime Abodes, which is on the website Access to Insight. So I think, is that the first web reference of the talks? Maybe, I don't know. So many, many talks these days have web references, so there's mine. 
Okay. That uh, uh, it's a beautiful essay. He said, "Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insights." And the quality of equanimity, um, you know, I think as Sylvia was saying, or maybe it was Larry, is the same. Is not the same as calm. It's not the same as tranquility. We can have things going really, really fast, and still be equanimous because it's really being balanced and non-reactive to whatever's happening. You know, I, I think I, I learned, somehow I learned this in one very interesting way. At the end of a retreat at IMS, I joined the kitchen and worked in the kitchen for several days. And I particularly remember serving tacos one day and it was like completely wild. We were running all around. There were so many condiments and just so much to do, continually replacing really fast but there was equanimity like that uh, stillness at the center of the hurricane or the, the storm, right? And that's what equanimity is like. There's an evenness. Um, one of my favorite expressions of equanimity is from Japanese haiku. So here's one from Basho. So remember there's 17 syllables, so they come and go quickly. So listen, <laughs> this is, this is for me an equanimity haiku. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. Okay, that's the total haiku. <laughs> okay. Do you get why it's an equanimity haiku in my view? It's basically, he's just describing what's happening. He's not saying, why did I put my pillow near the horse? I'm never going to do that again. And so, and, but it's more, no, this is, this is what happened. No complaints. <laughs> Another one from Isa. And I'll come back to Isa. Isa, Basho lived, I think, in the 18th century. Uh, Isa lived at uh, the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. And um, uh, several of the poems have uh, uh, fleas in the poem. There may, it may have been an issue <laughs> at the time. But this is a poem about um, equanimous coexistence with fleas. Okay? And there, um, there are two of them, actually. Um, I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. Yeah, these are subtle. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. Another one, they're talking about going to see a very beautiful mountain uh, called Matsushima. Now you fleas, you shall see Matsushima. <laughs> Off we go. So balance, evenness with experience. Equanimity also ha can have in its maturity, and again, think of your metta in this way, can have a, a quality of unshakability where the, the sense, maybe the sense of the intention of metta is um, hard, to, hard to move, hard to budge. And there... Um, very, very beautiful passages about equanimity. One of the, the well-known ones is where the Buddha says to his son, 
Rahula developed meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable, contacts will not invade your, your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too develop meditation that is like the earth. The quality of equanimity. Or for us, it can be, how do we bring the the metta, how do we bring our awareness, our good hearts, when we have ups and downs? A lot of that unshakability, the training is actually in when we find ourselves having difficult experiences. You know, and then maybe the metta is hard or the equanimity is hard. You know, classically, uh, there's a, a wonderful teaching called the eight worldly winds, sometimes called the eight worldly conditions, where it said, look out for these if you're interested in developing equanimity. Look out for pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. Right, those will knock us off our equanimity, probably knock us off our metta as well. So this is very relevant to our in-the-world practice as well. We want to look uh, when those arise and know that they will tend to make the equanimity hard. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. One of my favorite equanimity stories, I was... I was going to go buy it, but I, I, I have to tell it. It's one that stayed with me for a very long time. It's one of my early mentors uh, was Larry Rosenberg, who teaches in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and founded the uh, Cambridge Insight Center. And uh, Larry was a mentor, and we, we um, I remember my first retreat I ever did, Insight Meditation Retreat, we sat across from each other, and I said, I hope you, he said to me, I hope you don't suffer too much. I said, what? I came, <laughs> I came for bliss and understanding. <laughs> and so I, um, but uh, Larry, Larry told a wonderful story that stayed with me as an equanimity story, and it's this. Uh, Larry was also involved for a time with the uh, Cambridge Zen Center in the, in the Korean tradition. He studied with uh, Zen master uh, Sun Sanim. And uh, uh, Sun Sanim had Larry uh, teach a, a retreat right after Christmas. And it was uh, at the Zen Center. And um, Larry was living at the Zen Center. And he uh, stayed at the center. All the other people at the center went home. Uh, no one signed up for the retreat. <laughs> and Larry was the teacher. And, and uh, Larry went to, to his teacher, Sinsanim, and said, um, I guess we canceled the retreat, huh? And his teacher said, no. <laughs> It was a four-day retreat. <laughs> I want you to teach the retreat. I want you to go through the entire schedule. And I want you to give the Dharma talks. <laughs> and Larry did this for four days. He said he felt rather silly the first day. And then something kicked in. And he actually saw he was learning something. That was very beautiful. And he said, after that, you know, sometimes among teachers we say, how was the retreat? You know, how many people came? Oh, full retreat at Spirit Rock 90. Oh, good retreat. 
How many people came to that other retreat you did? Oh, six. Oh, not so many people, huh? You know, and there's that comparison. And Larry said after that experience, he just didn't go there. He didn't go. He just, he had that sense of, this is what I do, and I'll do it in any circumstances, right? That kind of unshakability. How can we have that with our meta practice? There's also very much with equanimity the qualities of understanding and wisdom. You know, that we um, see the nature of things, that we have a sense of the causes and conditions. I did a book several years ago called The Engaged Spiritual Life. I did a lot of uh, interviews of um, we might, what we might call spiritually grounded social activists. And pe- people also did a lot of service work. And the, uh, there was a, a quality of equanimity that was very pronounced in, in uh, most of them. And you know, um, I remember one Dr. Aryaratni from Sri Lanka who uh, set up this, uh, a network called Sarvodaya, which was a network, it's probably the largest expression of uh, Buddhist practice responding to social issues. 15,000 local chapters in Sri Lanka. They had a larger response to the tsunami of 2004, 2005 than the government. And he said, and they've also, as you know, in Sri Lanka had a civil war um, that you know, has been mostly under wraps for 14, 15 years. And he said, for our approach to the conflict, we have a 500 year plan. The causes and conditions that led to it we're connected with colonialism and took hundreds of years to develop. You know, and he mapped out a plan. Well, you know, the different cultures have to get to know each other. It could take, well, you know, five, 10, 20 years. We'll have to get at the roots of the problem. That could take, you know, they took a few hundred years to develop. It might take another hundred years. And he charted out a 500 year plan. And so equanimity often has that long view. I remember uh, Gary Snyder, a poet who's influenced me a lot, he said, it's very helpful to have a 4,000 year uh, overview when looking at issues. You know, and you can, I, I saw that in a lot of the people that I, that I talked to. Joanna Macy. Equanimity actually has to be related to the Big Bang <laughs> and see, if we are not separate from the living world, then we should act our age. We are four and a half billion years old. <laughs> and in terms of the origins of life, and 15 billion years old in terms of the Big Bang, every atom and every molecule and every cell of our body goes back that 15 billion years. The life that is beating our hearts and breathing our lungs now didn't begin with our conception. Rather, life flows through us. For me, this is a wonderful doorway into equanimity. We can also feel the presence of future and past generations encircling us, cultivating a sense of our collegiality with them, seeing them as companions on this awesome journey. I would call this an ordinary person's version of equanimity. I am just part of this great story 
This helps us as activists to give up trying to do it all in our lifetimes or to succeed as the most effective social change agent the world has ever seen, the peerless defender of the rainforest or the conqueror of the evil empire. Rather, there's a web of life that's much bigger than us. We're part of the story. So having that long view. An important aspect of equanimity is that it's responsive, that there's action connected with it. It's not simply an inner quality, but it's also, in large part, because it's integrated with the compassion and the metta and the joy, there's a responsiveness with equanimity. It's not simply the uh, kind of inner balance. You know, and we can see this quite a bit when we look to, the, um, to some of the near opposites of equanimity. That uh, the classic near opposite of equanimity is indifference. This is a danger and it's in large part uh, that will tend to be there when the wisdom factor is not integrated with the heart, not integrated with compassion. And so we want to track for that. We want to track for when our mindfulness or our wisdom or equanimity isn't responsive. And sometimes it's like that. And there are other forms as well, I think, that, that where equanimity can get a little bit lost. It can be really um, connected with aversion to suffering. Or sometimes I, I, was, I was thinking, you know, when I did that uh, book called The Engaged Spiritual Life, I got really interested in the near opposites of equanimity. And like I found not just one, but like eight or 10 different near opposites. You know, there could be denial, there could be complacency, there could be resignation. It kind of looks like we're balanced and, oh, I'm balanced, you know. Could be privilege. Yeah, I live high on the hill and suffering, I'm okay with suffering, right? That could be a, a near opposite of equanimity. Let's see, a poem. Let me see where this is. This is a poem from Gary Snyder. He was looking at um, the teaching of impermanence in light of the destruction of the Buddhas in Afghanistan in Bamayan. And someone wrote to him say, hey, you Buddhists, why are you so worried about blowing up some Buddhas? Isn't everything impermanent? And this was part of his response. Ah, yes, impermanence. And he's going to be quoting actually from um, a haiku from Isa, same person we looked at before, who wrote a haiku when his daughter died. And in the haiku, he talked about, uh, he quoted the Diamond Sutra, which has lines in it like, our life is like a bunch of things which are impermanent, including a dewdrop at dawn, right? So he's gonna quote from that. So I'll just say that before we get to it. Ah, yes, impermanence. But this is never a reason to let compassion and focus slide or to pass off the sufferings of others because they are merely impermanent beings. Isa's haiku goes, this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world and yet. And Snyder says that and yet is our perennial practice and maybe the root of the Dharma. 
Do you get that? It's, uh, yeah, I, don't, I won't say more. So we move towards that balance of metta and equanimity of the heart and wisdom. Nisargadatta, love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. And so that connection of our practice of metta with wisdom is long-term, but we want to, we can keep looking for that balance of metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity, and, and look out for when challenging situations arrive, like the pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, those will tend to knock our balance off. We can look for those. Those can be um, invitations to practice. Like it said in the uh, Tibetan Lojong teachings, take all obstacles as, uh, what's he say? Take all obstacles as invitations to practice. Take all obstacles as the starting point for practice. Not so easy, right? (laughs) But we can remember that and try to do that. And so we, we're, we're looking for wholeness in that way of connecting our mindfulness practice, our metta, our development of the heart with the wisdom qualities. And this is ongoing. This is, this is one expression of our wholeness. And another expression is one that we'll be especially exploring um, in a practical way, uh, in what we lovingly call the second half of the retreat, which begins at 11 a.m. tomorrow morning. (laughs) That there's a way that we also look for that wholeness in terms of the uh, continuity between the formal meta practice and our practice in our everyday lives, or between the retreat and this intensive practice of metta and our uh, practice in the world. So a few words about this, and we'll, say, we'll be saying more uh, tomorrow. First of all, I don't need to say that uh, it's challenging. To bring the metta practice in a full way, in a mature way, in our daily lives is hard. How do we, how do we bring awareness and the kind heart to situations which are... Uh, moving faster, they're more complex, people are talking, (laughs) and there sometimes are people who seem mean, (laughs) if not worse. I remember there was a a retreat uh, that I was, where I was a retreatant, and uh, I remember Jack Hornfield at the end of the retreat, he looked over the, the group and he said, you look so peaceful. Of course, you haven't opened your mouths yet. <laughs> and so, how do, we, how do we bring the metta practice in when we do open our mouths? We explored that some this afternoon. It actually is really possible. I didn't, I didn't give that story to say, you're just going into an impossible task. It's really actually extremely workable and metta can come very alive in in daily life. 
but we need, we need support. It's challenging in our culture because we, things are moving faster, all sorts of complexities. We don't have the level of support that we have here. We could go on, but those are, those are factors that are different. And, and we, we don't, I think we don't have the maturity of, that we might have in 20 years, 40 years, you know, assuming we deal with a few large-scale systemic issues. Um, but we don't have those practices um, developed yet that, you know, whether it's community like Larry was talking about or just really having a good sense of how do, how do, do, how do, how do we do talking? How do we do speech practice? How do we deal with conflicts? How do we bring metta into these situations? How do we get more support and so forth? So I want to talk briefly about uh, metta in a few different ways. I'll talk mostly about our individual practice. I'll talk a little bit about our relational practice with others and then also a little bit about bringing metta into the larger world. Um, I find it very helpful in terms of making this integration to think about, uh, in terms of individual practice, about outer supports and inner supports. And the, the outer supports would be aspects of community, sitting groups, mentors, teachers, centers, and these are exceedingly important. You know, I think we really, I think another way to say some of what Larry was getting at is that um, the practice, um, um, I think only really works with community. And I, we don't want to set you up to think, I have to do all of this by my individual will in my own corner of the world. That community and that outer support is crucial. And some of us have to uh, create more community. You know, if it's not there, create it. If you don't have the supports you need, create them. Kind of like what Wes Nisker says in terms of the news. If you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. Do you know that one? <laughs> yeah. In terms of individual practice, you know, a lot of which is in a community context, um, I find the cycle of retreat and individual practice at home in the world, that back and forth really, really crucial. One suggestion I sometimes make to people I work with is to know when their next retreat is. It actually can ease the mind sometimes. And also gives a certain confidence, whatever is building up now, there'll be a time to work with it. A practice that I've done for most of the last 35 years is a practice of a Sabbath, which is like a mini retreat once a week. It can have a huge impact on one's life. Uh, it can be a whole day. It can be a half a day. A lot of people I work with, their Sabbaths are three or four hours, but they do it regularly once a week. It becomes the pivot of practice, becomes the pivot of the week. And something releases, one unplugs, etc sets boundaries, very, very crucial for daily life practice. When we do our daily practice, which again is, is crucial, a lot of this will be familiar to a lot of us. You know, it's the basics of 
individual practice, really crucial to have a daily formal practice. We might, some of us might want to do um, primarily metta for the near future. That's fine. I know at, at times when I've been really inspired by metta, I've done only metta practice for six months or longer at times. You can also balance, do half and half metta and mindfulness. General guideline I use, if you want the metta to be strong, like be there at those times that I mentioned in the other talk, like when you need metta as an antidote, I would say 10 or 15 minutes a day. It really actually can go a long way, but every day. And you'll find if you do it like that, and I know a lot of you already are doing that, you'll find that the metta um, um, shows up at other times, that you might do metta when you're walking, or you might do metta in uh, a public place. You might do metta when you're driving. You know, and you can do it in all these places. A lot of the trick is finding ways that really work for you, where the metta can happen. And metta can really uh, work well. You can do metta on public transportation. You can do a version of metta for all beings. Go one person to another. Give them four phrases. Do that in a public place. Do that walking down the street. You know? Um, finding ways to have these short periods of metta. If you're doing a walk, uh, uh, that's every day. You know, I have some people I work with, they really focus on the time walking between the time they leave their car to the time they're in their office. It's not very much time. It's like six or seven minutes, but it's always practice. Little things like that make metta come alive in daily life. To find ways of having these other ways of gladdening the heart be there. You know, maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe it's uh, uh, gratitude. To have a gratitude practice, to have some way of continually connecting with the heart uh, every day. And it can, again, just be for a few minutes. I do a gratitude practice which, uh, where I just call up what I'm grateful for in the moment. I do it four times a day for about a minute. A minute each time. It makes a difference. It keeps the energy of gratitude. You can develop the sense of uh, gratitude and the kindness towards all beings, towards all things, towards what you find in your life, towards the trees, towards the non-human animals. Whatever gladdens the heart is going to support metta. Be with beauty. Take being with beauty as a practice be with art, be with music, be with beauty every day. It gladdens the heart. Here's a gratitude practice from one of my favorite books, which I occasionally read. And I will read the entire book now. It's brief, okay? This is called St. Francis Preaches to the Birds. And this can give some suggestions for daily life practice. This is St. Francis. It's 5 a.m., wake up, St. Francis. So he wakes up earlier than we do. He opens the window and sings, tra-la-la. He brushes his teeth and says, thank you, teeth. He washes his toes and says, thank you, toes. So it's metta towards his toes. He gets milk, a little anachronistic, it's okay. He drinks his coffee and says, thank you, coffee. He goes through the town, through the apple orchard, over the pasture, up the hill, 
and the birds come flying, 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 flying. (laughs) Then St. Francis preaches to the birds until the sun sets. Yes, until the sun sets. Good night. <laughs> so to find, to find ways every day that gladden the heart, you know, to, uh, I'm inspired by uh, Julia Butterfly Hill says, let the, uh, let the question be there, is my action coming out of love? Moment by moment. We can ask that. It, where is my heart right now? Metta is a way of saying, where is my heart right now? And continually asking that question, is my action coming out of love? And there's something I want to mention because there's been an emphasis here that um, I think it's very important to have the metta, as we've often said, be embodied. That uh, I know for myself that, um, you know, as I mentioned, knowing, you know, even with, um, conventional gender conditioning and non-expression of emotions very much being the norm. Still, I knew I was, had an open heart because of those films. Remember that story? And, and so, um, so that, and as, you know, as I developed the kind heart, I found that it could often be um, knocked around. And I think it's an issue for a lot of us we may have an openness, and very much an issue in the next days, we may have an openness, a sensitivity. How does that get grounded? Really crucial point. How does that openness of the heart get grounded? And I find very crucial to focus a lot on embodiment, be in the body, and particularly, I found it very useful to do practices which develop my center. Both the groundedness, the connection with the earth, and a sense of center, so in a sense, my heart would be open, but it would not so easily be knocked around if I was in my body and in my center. And um, that takes some time, but something I just wanted to note because a really crucial aspect, the body is very, especially in this culture, we, we a lot are, are not so connected with our bodies. And so something like a body practice, if, that, if, you, if you think that resonates with you, could be very, very helpful. Just a few more suggestions. Uh, there's so much that we could say, and sometimes I uh, talk about bringing that in the world for a whole hour. So I actually have like all sorts of suggestions, which will, I'm only giving you the essence, which is good enough. Um, so how do we bring metta to our relationships with others as well? Just a few things to say. Uh, again, we can do that in various ways when we're um, in public places, at meetings. I sometimes do metta in meetings. You can do that, especially if you don't have an active role. You, know, you can do metta there, or you can do mindfulness there. Uh, driving. Uh, a number of us use, uh, do metta with emails. It can really be done. I, um, um, did, did one long meta retreat 
uh, about five weeks, at the end of the last three or four days that I was there, I had to uh, look at emails to deal with some things. And so I downloaded like 500 emails after having done Metta for five weeks. And, and guess what? When I was looking at the emails, the Metta phrases didn't stop. And I, I, a practice developed, which a lot of us do, of actually doing Metta with my emails as a, as a course of uh, practice. So actually stopping and doing four phrases and trying to express the sentiment of metta in some way in the body of the email. Sometimes it's, it's, it's more subtle, sometimes it's more overt. You know, at first I used to say, I hope you're doing well. And then you know, when that got too obnoxious with people I write a lot of emails to, I just sometimes just said, blessings. <laughs> but um, it actually um, slowed down the being on electronics, which is, you know, so this is part of what I talk about. If we, I think if we all are creative, like in five years or 10 years, we'll have, all the, we'll have a whole handbook for metta in, the, in daily life, right? So let us know what you find. Let us know what your creativity, this, is, this just came from uh, me being on retreat and then answering emails. And you can bring metta into all these activities, you know, and it, it, it helps us to stop. I think in many ways the ethical precepts express metta. They express non-harming, they express care. And really taking the ethical precepts seriously is really to practice metta in the world. You know, what Heather uh, mentioned uh, yesterday, that passage which has also influenced me a lot, uh, one who loves oneself will not intentionally harm another. That's pretty intense when you look at it. One who loves oneself will not harm another. For me, it actually suggests a form of social action because it suggests those who harm others may not love themselves. And there may be causes for that. Right? So it's, a very, it's very profound, but working with the precepts can be tremendously, tremendously helpful. We can bring the spirit of metta into our speech in various ways. Sometimes it's to cultivate empathy and to have empathy as a way of connecting with people, to have one's heart there interested in what the other's experience is and not simply being isolated with one's own experience. Empathy is a very powerful expression of metta. from uh, Marshall Rosenberg, from his book on nonviolent communication, our ability to offer empathy can allow us to stay vulnerable, diffuse potential violence, help us hear the word no without taking it as a rejection, revive lifeless conversation, and even hear the feelings and needs expressed through silence. Interpersonally forgiveness practice can be an amazing way to, again, develop the heart in daily life. We can take difficult people as initiative or as starting points for our practice of metta. What would that be like? Oh, a difficult person. Time for metta rather than time for war, right? Or time for polarization. 
Now there's, a, there's some lines from Shantideva from the eighth century where he says, just like a treasure appearing unexpectedly in my home, I shall be grateful to have a difficult person for that person assists me in my conduct of awakening. <laughs> Look at that. So then lastly, just a few words on bringing metta into our, our wider world. And there's this, many in many traditions there, there's this vision of bringing the heart deeply into the world through service and action, which is in so many traditions. You know, in Jewish tradition, there's the vision called tikkun olam, to heal or repair the world. You know, there are the uh, teachings of Jesus to bring one's heart to one, one's enemies. There are the healing, healing rituals that, I've, that I mentioned that I, that I, I saw in the um, indigenous communities up in British Columbia where there's the gift giving, where there's uh, the community practices that are essentially are connecting people's hearts, healing and connecting as regular practices. There's the bodhisattva in Buddhist tradition who has the vision of doing inner work and then bringing awakening to others as well. Living beings are infinite, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, go the Zen phrases, I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. From Shantideva, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, whenever catching sight of others, look upon them with an open, loving heart. And then we have, of course, uh, people like Dr. King, One of the, uh, there was a, a listing of 10 commandments for people involved in the Birmingham campaign in 1963. One of the 10 commandments was walk and talk in the manner of love. That people had to sign on that they were doing that if they would join the campaign. Cornell West says justice is the public face of love. Interesting. And I think that there is actually evolving a new kind of person who acts in the world, who has this new toolkit, which includes metta, mindfulness, wisdom, training in ethics, training in dana or generosity, as well as a lot of practical skills of being in community, working with conflict, being skilled with differences and so forth. There's a new kind of being who I think is emerging and is uh, necessary for us to deal with our problems. I don't think the old methods of dealing with social issues work. I think we need these good hearts to help us uh, be with what's needed in the world. And, and um, all of us are those beings who will um, develop in that way and offer our our lives to help. 
Let me finish just with a few short readings. One of them is from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh about social action. The essence of nonviolence is love. Out of love and the willingness to act selflessly, strategies, tactics, and techniques arise naturally. Other struggles may be fueled by greed, hatred, fear, or ignorance, but a nonviolent one cannot use such blind sources of energy. Gandhi. Belief in nonviolence is based on the assumption that human nature in its essence is one and therefore unfailingly responds to the advances of love. And then three further short passages to close. Uh, Eudora Welty says, my continuing passion is to part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and that blind, that falls between us and that blinds us to each other's presence, each other's wonder, each other's human plight. And then from one of my uh, good friends, um, uh, Marianne Kutaya, she puts on her answering machine, be kinder to yourself than you think you need to be. And then I'll close with uh, a poem by Hafiz. Uh, It's from a poem called In a Treehouse. Light will someday split you open, even if your life is now a cage. For a divine seed, the crown of destiny is hidden and sown on an ancient fertile plain you hold the title to. Love will surely burst you wide open into an unfettered blooming new galaxy, even if your mind is now a spoiled mule. (laughs) A life-giving radiance will come. Oh, look again within yourself, for I know you were once the elegant host to all the marvels in creation. So I think of this really uh, in part as an invocation of community that to say that these are two of the ways that wholeness is difficult, you know, that, that we sometimes can't connect our metta with our wisdom. And we want to keep finding ways to do that. And we also sometimes it's hard to connect our practice of metta with all the different parts of our daily life. And I think of this as an invocation to community because we're all in it together and we're all finding ways to do this together and we need to stay in touch and keep letting us know what we find and keep encouraging each other, keep cheering each other on. That's really what I want to invite with our, with our uh, practice together. Thank you. And uh, so we have, uh, we have about 20 minutes of walking. And then we have a special 